This is where I'm going to share with you to begin with a Native American teaching story uh, that you may have heard. Uh, the way I heard it uh, was in this form. Uh, a woman was asked toward the end of her life, Grandmother, how did you become so happy and so wise and so respected? Everyone listens to you in council. People come to you. Everyone is your friend. You seem happy and steady even when things are bad or hard. How did you do it? She said, well, hmm. I think it's because when I was young, I realized that in my heart are two wolves, one of love and one of hate. And I realized as a young woman that everything depended on which one I fed each day. Sure, it's worth repeating. You know, the whole story or just the punchline? The punchline. Oh, sure. She says, everything depended upon which one I fed each day. Causes and conditions, or the modern update from Dr. Phil. So, how's that working for you? <laughs> right? For better or worse, right? And, you know, I get the shivers when I retell this story, which I've told multiple times, on two grounds. One, who among us does not also have a wolf of hate? Broadly defined, metaphorically speaking, capacity for anger, aggression, ill will, even violence. Who among us does not have that capacity in some way? I think there are rare beings who are actually born without the wolf of hate. They're born saints or they're just, they don't have it. But most people, definitely myself, I have that capacity, okay? That capacity to go there. So there's a tendency, I think, in spiritual communities, sometimes in human potential, new age, or just psychology communities, to want to disown the wolf of hate. But in fact, if we hate the wolf of hate, we just get more hate, right? We need to include and, and include the wolf of hate. The other thing that gives me the shivers is about this idea of which one do you feed each day, right? Causes and conditions. Which fire do we tend to? You know, some fire is always burning. The brain is always changing, for better or worse. What are the causes that we're tending to? And it's hopeful if we feed the wolf of love, and you can't kill the wolf of hate because that just feeds the wolf of hate, but put him, him, her, it, put that wolf of hate on a carrot juice diet and restrain the wolf of hate. And maybe draw upon the wolf of hate under special circumstances if needed for a very restrained and short-term kind of way. You know, maybe there's a place for um, a moment of aggression of some kind. That's a whole tricky business to consider. I'll be talking about assertiveness later on after lunch. Um, but uh, on the whole, think about the causes here in our own mind. Even in our own mind, that grumble in the back of the head, which wolf are we feeding in the back of the mind? You know, I've become a lot more alert to the muttering in the back of my mind when I realize that that muttering is building brain structure. You know, those people, they did me wrong. They're dumb. Why are they like that? They let me down. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Why don't they know I'm wonderful? Grumble, grumble, grumble. Mm. You know, that's feeding the wolf of hate. On the other hand, 
through seeing the best in others, through widening out our frame, seeing the big picture, not getting our knickers in a twist needlessly, right? Not overreacting to little things, deliberately cultivating loving kindness, deliberately cultivating compassion for other people, deliberately cultivating friendliness toward others. Uh, the root of the word metta in Buddhism, the, the loving kindness word, is friendship. It's friendliness, which I really like because it's a very grounded, rooted, down-to-earth way to think about this stuff that can sometimes seem a little too lofty, right? If we do those things, we're feeding the wolf of love, right? And I think it's important to appreciate in evolution that the wolf of love, if you will, the capacity to be kind, caring, cooperative, patient, forbearing, altruistic, and so forth with us also co-evolved, as this slide says, alongside the capacity and even the inclination to be dismissive, prejudiced, inhumane, exploitive, and even terribly aggressive toward them. Bands that were good at being loving toward us could outcompete bands that were not very good at being loving toward us. Also, poignantly, bands that were good at hating, quote-unquote, them, and they were better at hating them, quote-unquote, and taking their resources at times when bands competed with each other for scarce resources under harsh conditions with no refrigerators and no pain control and no police, right? No justice system in any good sense, no civil society. Bands that were better at aggressing upon them were also more able to pass on their genes. While it's true that in hominid evolution, and then certainly the last couple hundred thousand years of more or less human evolution, there was some cooperation between bands, some trade, some cooperation, um, and so forth. A lot, there was aggression and violence. Uh, Studies show, for example, that the death rate to males due to warfare in the 20th century was about 1%. One in a hundred boys born in the 20th century died related to warfare. That's a lot. Well, lots of studies show that on average, with important exceptions, but on average, the death rate due to between-band violence in modern hunter-gatherers as well as recent hunter-gatherers and more ancient hunter-gatherers, the death rate due to violence to males in in between-band violence was about 12 to 15 percent, 12 to 15 times higher. Part of that's due to the fact that there's not good medical care back in the Stone Age, et cetera, et cetera. But it just shows you that while there isn't the shock and awe of modern warfare, there was a low-grade grinding conflict. Now, this topic is somewhat controversial. People argue about it on different sides. Sometimes political motives get involved in how we want to tell the story of human evolution. I suspect that there was a lot of diversity in how bands were. But you know, if you just look out in the world today, whether it's thinking about the recent history of Europe, a profoundly civilized culture, you know, just in terms of World War II, uh, or what's happening in the world altogether today, you know, it's hard to not see the wolf of hate as part of the human story. Now, the wolf of hate shows up in very dramatic ways. It's tempting to go political and so forth here. I'm going to tend to keep bringing this down to, you know, the people we live with, sleep with, work with, you know, share fences with or grew up with. Um, for example, as they say here, in be- between family fights, the baboon's sense of self, of I, expands to include all of her close kin. So it's our family against your cam- family. 
But in within family fights, the sense of I, me, myself, and I, contracts to include only herself. She says, this explanation serves for baboons as well as for the Montagues and Capulets in Romeo and Juliet, or Red State, Blue State, uh, Shiite Sunni, uh, Catholic Protestant, Northern Ireland, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, what are we going to do about this? You know, to me, that takes us to the opportunity. You know, while it may have been uh, a good reproductive strategy to just annihilate uh, other bands and take their resources. We can't do this today with 7 billion, soon to be 10 billion people on one small little lifeboat. Also, it doesn't really work long term, as the Buddha taught you know, 2,500 years ago, to uh, mistreat other people. Ultimately, it comes back. I love the definition of karma as hitting golf balls in the shower. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Mistreat others, sooner or later, comes back. So usually in this life, and who knows, outside the natural frame, in some future life to come. Don't know. Um, but, uh, and also it feels bad. You know, I think about, you know, it was a big step for me when I reframed my own anger as an affliction upon me. In the moment of fear, we tend to not want to be afraid. When we're sad, we don't want to feel sad. When we're ashamed, we don't want to feel ashamed. But in terms of anger, in the moment of anger, we tend to like it. We, you know, we're revved up around it. We feel righteous about it, right? And it's particularly important to appreciate in that moment that my anger is an affliction upon me, not just other people. To quote the Buddha, getting angry with others is like throwing hot coals with bare hands. Both people get burned. Okay. So the opportunity uh, in a natural frame is to use our mind, to use our loving-kindness practice, to use um, the cultivation of virtue, to use the learning of key skills, to use our mind to change our brain so that it learns, right? And we become increasingly inclined in a wholesome direction so that using our mind to change our brain can then change our mind for the better to benefit ourselves and ultimately all beings. Okay. So in that context then, I want to talk about moving into the experiential bulk of this workshop here, to be able to manage the wolf of hate in ourselves and to manage it in other people, right? And to gradually cultivate that wolf of love inside ourselves, we need to be on our own side and we need to have various kinds of strengths. So as the Buddha says here, if one going down into a river, swollen and swiftly flowing, is carried away by the current, how can one help others across? For me as a therapist, one of the things I, I had to learn, I've been a therapist a long time, was that for a lot of people, actually the first step is the hardest one, and that's the step of being for yourself, being on your own side, caring about your own suffering. A lot of people are for others. They're a good friend to others, they're an ally, they're, they're, they treat others well, but they don't treat themselves very well at all. You know, getting on your own side. And the Buddha made it really clear, including in his own demonstration of his life story, that it's important to take care of your own needs, right? So that takes us into self-compassion and then also inner strength. And I want to do two practices with you about these. Okay? So in terms of self-compassion, as Pema Chodron writes, the root of Buddhism is compassion. 
Now she's coming at this from a Tibetan frame, which really emphasizes that aspect, but certainly, um, as you saw in that quote from the Pali Canon, which is the Theravadan wing of Buddhism, which preceded the Tibetan wing of Buddhism, the quote from Ananda and the Buddha, Ananda saying, you know, relationship is half the holy life, and the Buddha saying, it's the whole of the holy life. You know, there's a lot of consistency there with this point about the root of Buddhism being compassion, broadly defined. And as Pema Chodron goes on, the root of compassion is self-compassion. Ultimately, we burn out on giving compassion for others if we don't have compassion for ourselves. If you think about it from a moral standpoint, the, person, uh, the, the people we have duties to are the people we have power over, right? Whether that's a therapist or a physician or an accountant or a lawyer or hopefully a duly elected official or a parent, right? We have duty, our responsibility to the other person rises as our power over them grows, right? Well, who's the one being we have the most power over? It's our future self. Who we are a minute from now, a day from now, a year from now, lying on our own deathbed from now. You know, that's the being that we have the highest duty to because that's the one that we have the most power over. It's also the one that we have the greatest influence over. So there's the greatest return on investment. I also have a business background in terms of our efforts for the one being among all others that wears our name tag. And I think this rationale is important because without understanding the principled basis for being a good friend to oneself, it's hard to sustain it. Okay. So, self-compassion. There's a lot of research on this importance of self-compassion for everyday well-being, for healing, and for effectiveness. In other words, being nice to yourself will make you stronger, which I think is pretty darn cool. It builds resilience to have compassion for oneself. Compassion is simply the wish that a being not suffer, usually combined with feelings, emotions of warmth, or sympathetic or tender concern. Right? That's compassion. And we can extend compassion to others, and we can also extend it to ourselves. It's the same kind of compassion. It's just directed to ourselves. But even though research shows that self-compassion has got tons of value, it's, pardon me, it's often hard for people to actually do. So based on research on the brain, factors of compassion and so forth, I have a little three-step process that I go through for compassion for myself sometimes, and also I'll teach it here to you in an experiential way, and you're very welcome to use it with other people. By the way, how many of you... Um, get paid to care for others as therapists, educators, healthcare professionals, physical therapists, coaches. Long, okay, I see it's half the room. All right, so obviously a lot of this material has applications in clinical practice or healthcare practice or in school systems, you know, and you're very welcome to share this material with other people. By the way, I should say that on my website, I have a ton of freely offered material, rickhanson.son.net, and you're very welcome to download anything there and use it with others as you like. Okay, great. So you want to do a little practice here? Right. Right. So, like all practices, you know, see what happens inside the mind. There's an aspect of practice which is utterly receptive, you know, bear witnessing, choiceless awareness, where we just we try to we simply stably be with whatever's flowing through, you know, flowing along in the stream of consciousness. All right. And there are aspects of practice that are about cultivation. There are a lot of practices in Buddhism in which we make deliberate efforts in the mind. That's the wise effort component of the Eightfold Path. 
We make deliberate efforts in the mind to grow good things there. Now, sometimes that works. Other times, though, it's like trying to light a fire with wet wood. It just doesn't ignite. And that's frustrating and so forth. That might come up, you know, just know that. But it's in the larger frame of trying to get good things going, trying to grow flowers uh, in the garden of the mind. Okay, so let's begin. So to begin, with eyes open or closed, and you might find that keeping your eyes closed helps you to focus. Although it's interesting over time to do practices like this increasingly with eyes open, because it's typically in situations where we need to have our eyes open that we often need to draw upon our inner resources, our inner strengths that we've cultivated over time. So to begin with, just coming into a sense of being present with yourself here and now. including the body. Not trying to change anything in your experience, just kind of opening wide to include it, letting it be. And then in the first of the three suggestions, bring to mind someone who cares about you. It doesn't need to be a perfect relationship. It could be a person in your life today or in your past. It could be a group of people. It could include an animal companion, a pet, perhaps a spiritual being or force. And by bringing to mind one or more beings who care about you, see if you can open increasingly to an experience of being cared about. You're moving from an idea or image of beings who care about you to hopefully a growing feeling in the body or emotion of feeling cared about. By feeling cared about, I include any one of a number of possible things, such as feeling included, simply belonging. That's a kind of being cared about. Maybe part of a group of friends or a sports team. Uh, Perhaps you served in the military as part of a group of people. Maybe your family. Being cared about also includes being seen, understood, empathized with. That's an example. Feeling cared about includes being appreciated, respected, valued. You might bring to mind times of that. And by the way, I'll be quiet in a moment or two to let you explore this on your own. Feeling cared about includes as well being liked. What's it like to feel liked?
And feeling cared about, of course, includes a sense of being cherished or loved. Any one of these aspects of feeling cared about is fine. And as I'll be quiet here for some moments, see if you can keep regenerating or cultivating the sense of feeling cared about, perhaps strengthening it with a hand on your cheek or a hand on your heart, as if the most loving, compassionate being in the universe, perhaps Tara, an emanation, as it were, of loving kindness and compassion, is blessing you, loving you, just seeing the best in you. You're just kind of resting in, feeling cared about. See if you can help yourself receive, let in, take in the good of this experience of being cared about. What's it like to feel liked? What's it like to feel appreciated? What's it like to feel loved? feeling cared about can become an object of meditation, can actually become a focus of concentration or absorption, opening out into resting in one aspect or another of feeling cared about. And then, in the second step, 
letting whatever sense of feeling cared about that you've cultivated to move to the back of the mind. In the second step, bring to mind someone that you care about. In particular, one or more beings that you have compassion for. Compassion presupposes stress or suffering. Someone who's grappling with challenges, maybe in pain. Could be a child you know, or a friend, maybe someone in your family, or at work. Could be people you just know about, you've never met them personally, perhaps living in poverty, abroad or at home. And you're cultivating now feelings of compassion for this being or beings, the wish that they not suffer, usually with feelings of warmth, concern. You might strengthen this experience of compassion with soft thoughts in the back of your mind, such as, may you not suffer or perhaps naming the person if you know them by name. Mary, may you not suffer. Or you might offer thoughts that are quite specific, such as, may you find work. Or may you not worry so much about your children. Or may you find true love. Or may your chemotherapy go well. So I'll be quiet here for some moments as you explore the cultivation of compassion and letting yourself sink increasingly into compassion as you increasingly receive it, as the feeling of compassion sinks more and more into you. Know what the experience of compassion is like. It could be quite subtle. It could be a powerful feeling in the heart. Sometimes it helps to literally have a sense of the breath moving through the heart or some kind of energy. Registering the experience of compassion letting it land in you.
And then, in the third step here, knowing what the experience of compassion is like, knowing what this stance is like, this attitude, this intention, apply this experience of compassion to yourself. Perhaps seeing yourself outside you or simply knowing about yourself, perhaps seeing yourself as a child, or being aware today of challenges or difficulties you face. We all have challenges and difficulties, stresses, losses, including being worried about other people we care about. And see what it's like, as the Buddha said, to keep radiating, rippling compassion to yourself, perhaps combined with soft thoughts, such as, may I not suffer? Or you might even explore using your own name. If I were to do it, it could be, may you not suffer, Rick? Or perhaps you might have something specific to say to yourself, such as, may I learn to live with this pain? Or, may I not be so hard on myself? Or, I wish I did not feel so sad. Or, may my own chemotherapy go well. So I'll be quiet for some moments here again as you keep exploring as best you can the regeneration of compassion for yourself, the renewing of it, the radiating, omitting none, including the being who wears your name tag, the wish that you not suffer with warmth and concern. If you get drawn into the pain, it's okay. And as much as you can, you want the bulk of attention to be on the compassion part. Sending good wishes. Even if you can't change anything, you can be compassionate about it. May I not suffer. May I truly be at peace.
the pain is over there, as it were, and you are over here, as it were, radiating ripples of compassion, waves of compassion to the pain. You are predominantly resting in compassion for yourself. You might apply this to yourself as a child, thinking back on times that were hard for you. That little kid you once were, a little boy or girl, or perhaps a young adult, or previously in your adulthood. Thinking of yourself at different times, exploring what is it like to wish that earlier version of yourself well. You might even explore what it could be like to imagine younger versions of yourself at key times, and as if you today could put your arm around that younger man or woman, boy or girl, and whisper into the ear of that younger version, Give warmth or love to that younger version. What might you communicate?
And then, if it's real for you, as we start finishing up here, see if there's any sense of receiving compassion. Deep down in your brain, it doesn't know the source of the compassion that's been coming your way. It doesn't know that you're the source of it. See if there's some sense deep down, what is it like to receive care and good wishes? What's it like to receive compassion? Sometimes we think we have to be perfect or special or better to deserve self-compassion. And I like this line from Leonard Cohen, a longtime Zen practitioner, this lyric, not a line. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. We're all cracked. That's how the light gets in. So in a moment, I'll give you an opportunity, if you like, to just share uh, or just ask a question or comment about the practice we just did. And uh, we'll run the mic, I think, just because uh, it's better than me uh, repeating things. Where's Lily? Where's the mic? Lily, the mic. There you are. Great. So Lily will... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.